Oh, did you find that interesting to tune into contentment? Anyone find that interesting? Because um, uh, one of the interesting things about the instructions, which we'll get into, is that we are inveterate uh, problem seekers. <laughs> we we want to have our all our attention to really notice the problems and look out for them. And part of it's, I'm sure, rooted uh, from an evolutionary point of view in the way the brain and the nervous system are designed. But part of the interesting aspects of these practices is that we're also invited to notice when we have the absence of problematic states. And they're actually uh, absent a lot more than we think. And when we actually, it's like, can we tune into the positive? And there can be some, often a, some contentment or even joy that's actually there that we're not really noticing. And sometimes when we notice it, it actually gets bigger. Anyone notice that? It's very interesting. We'll, we'll come back to that. So this segment, we want to start focusing on the third foundation of mindfulness. Uh, so, we can read the text. Let's see, where did my text go? Here it is. So, I'll read the text. This is called, in the translation, uh, Contemplation of Mind. And how bhikkhus, bhikkhu is the word for monk, we could say more generally, how practitioners, does a practitioner abide contemplating mind as mind? Here a practitioner understands mind affected by lust or, or greed as mind affected by lust, and mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. He understands mind affected by hate as mind affected by hate, and mind unaffected by hate as mind unaffected by hate. He understands mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion, and mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion. He understands contracted mind as contracted mind and distracted mind as, as distracted mind. He understands exalted mind as exalted mind and unexalted mind as unexalted mind. He understands surpassed mind as surpassed mind and unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed mind. He understands concentrated mind as unconcentrated mind and unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated mind. He understands liberated mind as liberated mind and unliberated mind as unliberated mind. In this way, he abides contemplating mind as mind internally, or he abides contemplating mind as mind externally, or he abides contemplating mind as mind both internally and externally, or else he abides contemplating in mind its arising factors, or he abides contemplating in mind its vanishing factors, or he abides contemplating in mind both its arising and vanishing factors. Or else mindfulness that there is mind is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu or practitioner abides contemplating mind as mind. So we will unpack that. <laughs> and uh, make it uh, accessible, I think. And, and uh, connect, uh, connect with our experience. As I mentioned, generally, if you would go to classes or retreats, 
rarely actually would you actually uh, hear that text read. And rarely would you actually have the, um, all the instructions that were given there given. Typically, in retreats, we would present the third foundation of mindfulness as mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. And the instructions would be similar to the ones that I gave for the walking and then for in the guided meditation. Simply track thoughts and emotions when they're there. Again, maybe in the three ways of being mindful that I gave earlier. First, just noting them, being aware, kind of tracking. Okay, that's happened. There's anger present or there was just a planning thought just went by. Okay, there it was. I noticed it and so forth. Noting the first, then when they're there for a longer stay, really being present with it. Anger is there for 10 minutes. You stay with it, study the way it appears in the body, the thoughts and so forth. You really notice it. And the third would be to see the patterns by which it appears. And there we might notice particularly with my anger, when I look at it continually and experience what triggers it, can I be noticing what triggers it in my meditation? Okay, I had the thought of my colleague with, with whom I had a difficult interaction last week. I just happened to think of that and I found my body getting hot a little bit and my mind going off into a scenario, a story and so forth. So I want to track the this is related to, in the text, the arising and vanishing aspects. We want to watch it, what makes it appear. Can I stay with it? You know, what are, what are the different elements? And when does it pass away? And what does it pass to? So we can look at, we can use mindfulness in those three ways. And typically, we just ask people to track thoughts and emotions. When you have something like anger there, stay with it, study it. Invaluable on retreats. People can learn to be with difficult states in the mind, the body, the emotions, and bring mindfulness to it in ways that can be um, profoundly transformative. We can do that. But we don't, we, that's pretty, that's the basis of the instructions. So I want to come back to those instructions, but I want to go through the text right now and give some explication. And we need to start, first of all, with the very word that's translated as mind. The word is citta, uh, C-I-T-T-A, and it's sometimes spelled C-H-I-T-T-A, and it's pronounced more like that, citta, C-H. And it's sometimes translated as mind, sometimes translated as consciousness, sometimes translated as state of mind and heart. And when we look to the very word mind that we are contemplating in this third foundation, we immediately get into translation issues and we immediately get into issues of uh, cultural difference. And it's important to bring those out. Uh, Generally speaking, the word citta uh, involves what we would call thoughts and emotions. Uh, in generally, in the Asian languages connected with Buddhism, there's not a strong separation between what we would call thought and emotion, or between mind and heart. You know, my friend Larry Yang says that when his uh, father, uh, with Chinese roots, uh, 
will say, uh, I'm thinking of something, he will sometimes put his hand on his heart. And we don't have that same distinction. In the languages of Pali and Sanskrit, there's no word that translates directly as emotion, believe it or not. So we get into these different issues um, that we, uh, we seem to, in the West, in the Western languages, tend to divide experience, not always, often we just have mind and body, but we often tend to divide experience into what we call the body, what we call the emotions, and what we call the mental. You know? And it's interesting that there is some parallel between the uh, three aspects of the brain, the triune brain. There's some parallel between the reptilian brain, the limbic system, which is more connected with emotions, and the neocortex. So it's, in, it's interesting. I won't, you know, but, we can, but basically what we have is we can, we can divide experience in different ways. And generally in the Buddhist context, the division is between mind, you know, what would be translated as mind and body. And in the West, sometimes we do that, but often we divide it in a threefold way. Now, this becomes uh, complex because all of these words have connotations. And so when we use the word mind to translate something that includes thoughts and emotions, it can very easily lead to confusion. And so I don't actually like the translation of mind for citta, personally. I, you know, when I give instructions, I give a translation something like mind and heart, or mind-heart, to indicate that it really carries both of those, those dimensions. So we should be aware of that every time we read the word mind. It's actually something bigger than what we typically mean by the mental. So it's not exclusively cognitive and it's not exclusively relating to thought. And there can be a lot of confusion about that. And I think, personally, I think that I would want somehow a better tra translation than mind. But that's, that's the main one. That's the one that's typically given. And it also gets more complicated because when we look to um, thoughts and emotions, particularly with emotions, the emotions that we experience have a strong cultural framing. And this gets, starts to get quite complicated because what it means, I think, and again, this isn't always brought out by the translations, and it's not, not often brought out by, I, I find, a lot of teachers, but what it means is that um, uh, anger as an emotion ha may have, and does have, I believe, a strong aspect of cultural construction. In other words, anger in a Western context may have different connotations than the words translated as anger from the Buddhist languages. So, for example, in the West, something like anger 
um, which one author on anger named Carol Tavris said may be the most misunderstood emotion in history. <laughs> because you have anger is both in Western systems one of the seven deadly sins, but you also have God and Jesus get angry. And there's a kind of righteous anger, uh, often connected with justice, that has a certain legitimacy and is not simply negative in Western context. And yet, we often have the word dosa, which is uh, often translated, here it's translated as hatred, it's often translated as anger, which starts to get very confusing. Because in many Buddhist circles, anger, if if it's translated as dosa, is simply negative. And that doesn't square with the Western cultural connotations of anger. And so I once gave a talk on why Western Buddhists are confused about anger. <laughs> you can see some of, there are a lot of other reasons why we're confused, but some of it's in the translation and the different cultural connotations. I won't go too much into this, but just to say that we should be aware of this when we're reading texts and be very careful with the translations. The Dalai Lama once said, after talking with a number of people who informed him about how anger is seen in the West, he was particularly talking with psychotherapists uh, who, who, again, would not see anger as simply negative. He, would say, he said that the Asian words that signify what's called a klesa or kalesa, something which is simply negative, should never be translated by the word anger because of those kind of confusions. And so it gets tricky because you'll see uh, the word anger as, even as a translation of, of dosa, which means it's often translated as hatred. It starts to get very confusing when we read these texts. And so I just wanted to highlight that. One, further, one way to frame this, again, uh, some psychologists distinguish between three aspects of what we call emotion. They distinguish between affect, feeling, and emotion. And affect is that which is more universal and physiologically based. In other words, anger may appear on a physiological basis in a similar way in different cultures. There's more blood, people get hot, and so forth. But the uh, uh, affect is maybe more something innately structured and hardwired, but then it's not necessarily conscious. And feeling is sometimes said to be affect made conscious. So we have something that starts to get into emotion, but emotion itself is socially constructed in a particular culture in a certain way and is distinguished quite a bit from the raw physiological experience. You know, and so in some cultures, what we call anger is sometimes okay, right? We see a lot of activists who think anger is okay a lot of the time, right? Because we have justice on our side, right? Very common. And yet in other cultures, uh, anger, the public expression of anger would never be acceptable. So it's very interesting, right? Now, this is just adding a level of complexity to all of what we're looking at. (laughs) 
you know. <laughs> and urging us to be careful. So not only do we have to be careful with the word mind, but we have to be careful with some of the translations of the terms and be aware of cultural connotations whenever we're getting into culturally constructed emotions. So I don't think these points are always recognized in Buddhist context. And there can be a lot of confusion. As I mentioned, anger is a prime case where people, I think there's, in many Buddhist settings, people think, I'm angry, I must be un-Buddhist. And it leads to, at times, uh, a lot of difficulty in dealing with conflict in Buddhist context. You know, coming, so the, the, this isn't just a theoretical issue, right? This is a very important practical issue. People can think, I've been practicing meditation for 20 years and I'm still angry. I'm not making progress. I'm bad. I judge myself, you know. Um, you know. And then the more the social way in which confusion about anger can have actually pretty profound social ramifications. So you can see that. So some caution about how we use the terms and how we, how we make the translations. So that being said, <laughs> You know, uh, and I'll, I'll, when, th- when that point becomes relevant, I'll try to bring that up, or if you see something where that's relevant, but it's something to bear in mind. And it comes, you know, comes into play immediately with the first instructions. So the text itself, so I'll, I'll probably talk for a little while more, then open things up for some discussion. Um, the text itself gives three sets of instructions. And it's helpful to see that. The first set of instructions has to do with the presence or absence of greed, hatred, or delusion. What's translated as lust in this, um, in this setting. Which I think, again, I would uh, quarrel a little bit with the translation because I think in our culture, lust has a lot of sexual connotations. And I think this is more about something more general. You know, it's generally about kind of a compulsive wanting or being drawn to something, which is more, uh, maybe I, to me, greed uh, captures that, that sense. So in the first set of instructions, we're invited to look for the presence of greed, hatred, or delusion, or the absence of it. And I should say that I think a way that I and many people interpret all these instructions is, is that these are seen as representative instructions rather than comprehensive instructions. Does that make sense? In other words, we, it's helpful to look at what's being pointed to in these instructions, but I would take that more generally that the third foundation is about different kinds of states of mind and emotion, which, you know, including all sorts of states like anger, fear, different kinds of thought patterns, which are not explicitly mentioned in the text. So I, that's how I would tend to interpret this. And certainly, I think, how we interpret it Spirit Rock, because we, as I said, generally interpret this as meaning practice with thoughts and emotions. So the first set of instructions, the presence or absence of greed, hatred, delusion. And I'll come back to each of these. We'll primarily deal with this first instruction now and the others, I think, after lunch. The second is to look for the uh, presence of either contracted mind or distracted mind both of which are actually negative. So this first set of instruction actually has us look at uh, three pairs 
The first out of the pair is problematic, greed, hatred, delusion, and the absence is something positive. The second set of instruction has us look at either contracted mind or distracted mind. And the third set of instructions has us look to different states of concentrated mind or the mind that is free. So I'll come back to the latter two, but I want to first look at the um, first look at the instructions about greed, hatred, delusion. In the Buddhist context, as many of you know, greed, hatred, delusion are taken to be the three roots of suffering. They are taken to be the three uh, so-called unwholesome ekusala the unwholesome or unskillful states of mind. And so this is a very significant teaching. This is basically saying, really look out for when greed, hatred, delusion are there, because if it's there and you're not aware of it, and you react rather than respond, you will tend to go down the garden path. (laughs) You will tend to get lost and you will tend to act in ways that, are, that have uh, bad consequences. And so being mindful of really tracking when is there greed, when is there hatred, when is there delusion, and really looking, looking at them. Again, we can use this sort of threefold model of types of mindfulness and say, first, we want to just notice that they're there. You know, let's suppose you have a fleeting thought of, I will definitely have an ice cream cone at the Woodacre Deli for lunch. <laughs> and, and you start thinking about the ice cream cone for five minutes and you don't listen to all the discussion of greed, hatred, or delusion. <laughs> yeah. I have a question of clarification. Yeah, so the way that you just use that, it also goes back to the, the five hindrances, which one of which is desire and craving. Is that mm-hmm. how lust and maybe greed is um, interpreted? to be interpreted here, or is lust and the hindrance of desire complete different understanding? Yeah, so the question about uh, how do we understand greed, hatred, delusion, is it related to, to um, the teaching of the hindrances, which will turn up in the fourth foundation, and which is also the so-called hindrances, the, another translation is the difficult energies, or the difficult, the energies which make mindfulness uh, difficult. It's one way to say, talk about it. And they are uh, some kind of strong wanting, some kind of strong aversion. So they are, they are the same. The third is uh, translated usually as sloth and torpor or kind of sleepiness. The fourth is restlessness. And the fifth is doubt. So you'll see that, all, that um, <coughs> doubt may be a, interpreted as a kind of delusion. And you'll see that the uh, first and second turn up among the list of the uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. And then the third and fourth turn out under contracted and distracted mind, the second set of instructions. That distracted mind is likened to restlessness. And the, uh, this is what the commentaries say. And contracted mind is the kind of the sleepy mind. So actually, you're, you're right that, that there's, the instructions are very linked to these types of mind which make mindfulness hard. So then is that what the, with the term lust, is that the yeah. same as just desire? Yeah, just, just the, 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 want, the wanting, mm-hmm. the, the, the wanting. And so um, 
it's the, the term is raga, R-A-G-A in the, in the Pali for, you know, could, it's translated as lust, it could be translated as desire, could be translated as uh, greed. And the term for, uh, that's translated as hatred is dosa, D-O-S-A, which is sometimes translated as anger, you know. If I'm correct about what I said earlier, that's a very problematic translation. But it's often translated as that, so it, it could be, it's usually translated as hatred, it's sometimes translated as ill will. Again, these are taken be, to be the roots of uh, problems. When we have some kind of compulsive wanting and or com- some compulsive pushing away, or when there's some kind of uh, delusion, the word is moha, M-O-H-A, which again, there's sort of a family of English words which could fit uh, delusion, ignorance, bewilderment, confusion, and so forth. Um, could, could map onto those terms. The uh, <clears throat> opposites of them, as I mentioned in the guided meditation, uh, can be uh, either like a strong opposite, like when we are asked to look into non-greed, it's a code word also for something like generosity. Or, like I said, it could be also something like contentment, I think, could fit into that field. When we look at what does non-hatred mean, the opposite of hatred, it would typically mean some kind of love or compassion, metta, loving-kindness, and so forth. And the opposite of delusion would be wisdom. So what we're being invited to really check for are the presence of uh, the presence of these negative roots, which are again taken to be very crucial because they are tend tend to lead in all sorts of uh, problematic or dangerous directions. And but we're also invited to look at when they're not present. And this is this starts to get more subtle and is not usually part of our instructions. Very interesting. Like when we look into okay, I'm just sitting here. Is there greed, hatred, delusion? Not particularly. Well, let me tune in. Is there something like the opposite? Maybe contentment. And then when you tune into contentment, and really it sometimes gets bigger, and you can feel a certain kind of bliss or well-being. It's quite interesting. So part of the import of this practice is to help us to tune in more easily and more often to the positive states. Again, not to be using... Because again, in our, our tendency may often be, I really track carefully when there are problematic states, a lot of them. But I don't often tune in when there's just care or love or a basic contentment. Do I really tune in? And some of, one of the core teachings here is that when we don't have greed, hatred, or delusion present, we actually have beautiful qualities present. But we often don't see them. You know? So it's quite an important kind of practice, you know, that we can really notice, you know. I know James Barras teaches this class, which some of you have taken, called Awakening Joy. One of his core practices is just to notice when there's joy during the day, when there are moments of well-being or joy or happiness. So this is part of that practice. So we're invited to look at greed, hatred, delusion, notice when they're there, but then to start studying them. You know, what are these, what are these like? 
And so the invitation is not just to notice that they're there, but to do that second kind of mindfulness and explore them. What does greed feel like? You notice it there. Okay, what is this like? Really to be with it. You're really angry at someone that's turning into hatred where it feels compulsive and just happening. Study it. Feel what it's like in the body. Feel what it's like in the mind. Feel what the storyline is. See what triggers it. See when it passes away. You know, um, it's a very interesting study. I, uh, a number of years ago, about 10 years ago, my uh, friend and colleague Diana Winston and I uh, offered a class called Greed Management. <laughs> we offered it in the East Bay. We did not have a large turnout. <laughs> Even though, objectively speaking, many people were in need of it. <laughs> in fact, we had five people in the class. Two teachers, five people. Yeah, very good. We were very enthusiastic. Um, we studied greed and we explored it. The, um, we had a final exam for people. At that time, the Bed Bath & Beyond store in El Cerrito was newly opened. And what, of, what we did on our final exam for our final class, people were instructed to do 30 minutes of silent walking meditation <laughs> in the newly opened Bed Bath & Beyond store. <laughs> and to notice what arose. <laughs> it was a fascinating, I mean, I was, I had never been in the Beth Beth and Beyond store or anything quite like it, you know, so you, I think it's still like that way. You come in, I think you notice on the right that your first choice is between 40 different kinds of garbage cans, you know. And one of the most amazing things was I discovered that there were incredible number of products for needs that I did not know existed. <laughs> One of my favorites was something to give more space um, for storing things by having racks that were mount, would mount on one's TV set and take up those valuable three or four inches that would not otherwise be used. I definitely wanted that. For <laughs> yeah. And so what was interesting also was that we, we actually had time to really study greed, to really be with it. And it was very, very interesting. And this is really important to do. This is what we do in our mindfulness practice. And there's a real important place in our mindfulness practice also for reflection. So let's suppose we had a greedy episode during the day or an episode of hatred or being lost in some way in delusion and confused. It's really valuable in the mindfulness practice to look at it in the moment but it can be incredibly valuable also to reflect back later and say, all right, what triggered that? What led to that? That helps us start to look at the patterns. Where did I go? And we'll see in the afternoon, there's actually, there are practices we can do where we bring up greed, hatred, delusion deliberately in order to explore it. It's possible to do that. Because we have to hang out with the, we have to hang, basically, the core teaching of mindfulness is we have to hang out with everything to know what it's about. That's it. You know, if you want to know what anger is about, hang out with anger. If you want to know what fear is about, hang out with fear. If you want to know what greed, hatred, and delusion are about, hang out with it. Be with it. In, in a variety of different ways that we'll explore further. 
So we found, for example, in our group, uh, that greed had a number of different uh, qualities, that I, some of which I did not know before doing that inquiry. You know, and a lot of them, it'll be kind of common sense to you, but it was very interesting. One of the things about mindfulness practice is when you really look at something like greed, hatred, delusion, carefully over time, it'll never be the same. And you won't be so trapped by it or caught in it. It's really, really interesting. I'll tell different stories in the afternoon about that as well. But here we looked at greed, and we found here is what greed seems to be like. It seems to be highly impulsive. Duh. <laughs> right? But it's really good to know that and see what that feels like. What does that feel like in the body? It's highly impulsive. There was a sense of being out of control or out of balance with greed. You know, it's kind of taking me away, you know. And so, same, you know, the counterpart would be quite similar with hatred when we look at that, or the energy of the strong, almost like compulsive aversion. It'll have the same qualities, parallel qualities, being impulsive, being, having a feeling of being somewhat out of control or a lot out of control, out of balance. With greed also, there was a sense that it was a sense that it was very self-centered. Only my wishes matter. It was locked into a kind of self-centeredness. So this starts to bring in the wisdom dimension where we can see, oh, this is, this is how it's linked to a sense of self, you know, which we know in Buddha's context we're going to want to look at impermanence and also what causes suffering and then whether there's a strong sense of a separate self involved. That's what start, those are the so-called three characteristics, and when we look at those carefully, we start to see through some of our common filters and see things more accurately. So in the greed, when we would be in the Bed Bath & Beyond store or just looking at greed otherwise, we found um, very self-centered, only my wishes matter. Often there was no sense of consequences to my actions. When I'm in the grip of greed, I don't really think about consequences. You can see that that's a lack of wisdom. Right? That, that translates directly into a lack of wisdom. I will act without a sense of consequences. I will typically not be connected with others. I'll be disconnected from others. That's what we found. And sometimes there was a sense of entitlement. You know? There were all these things packed into greed. Very interesting. Like, I deserve this in some way. Very, very interesting. So we can do that. You know, this, this is what we found in our five-week class. <laughs> you know? And you can look at greed, study it. Study, study hatred, see what's there. You know? Again, look at the patterns. What triggers greed, hatred, delusion? Think of those three kinds of mindfulness. And then also tune in to when they're not present. So one of the forms of homework that we can do in the next uh, uh, weeks before the next day long, or, or generally if you're, not, if you're not able to be at the day long, is to actually do a practice like this where you have your radar up. One of the practices I give is be aware in a given sitting of any moments of greed, hatred, or delusion. Or maybe better still, have your radar up for a week and just focus on I'm just going to notice greed for the next week. You know, and have your radar up Make your intention at the beginning of the day, and when it comes, study it. It might come a few times a day. Same thing with hatred, delusion. You can do that as a practice. I would recommend doing something like that 
for a week or so. So you really get to look at it. Take notes. You know, you can t mindfulness can be helped in this way sometimes by taking notes on what you find. You because know, some of this is we're building the wisdom factor. Tune into the, the experience when these aren't present as well. So maybe just one other comment, and then I'll, I'll take some questions. One of the implications of this is that it's not a problem that we have greed, hatred, and delusion in one sense in the sense that these are not to be seen and judged. Oh my God, I've got greed appearing in my mind. It's more like, welcome to planet Earth. <laughs> you know? And so by the fact, of, it's, it's kind of a paradox, by the, we notice we can follow greed, hatred, delusion, see that it has maybe some of those consequences I was mentioning, like self-centeredness, not aware of consequences. We can see how that's connected with suffering. But in this practice of mindfulness, we're not trying to change what's occurring. We're trying to study what's occurring because the understanding is that when we do that enough, our wisdom will guide us and we'll be able to respond. So the fact of there being greed, hatred, delusion there is a starting point for mindfulness and being being present to what's occurring, <clears throat> and it's not helpful to judge ourselves, oh, I'm greedy. That's not the point of this. It's a pretty important point. We want to study it, and there's, I'll come back maybe after lunch, and we'll look at that in a little more detail. How do we actually stay with this and notice it? And we can notice, oh, here's what happens with greed. Here's what my mind feels like in greed. Here's what my actions tend to go when I'm greedy. Of course, when we're mindful, we're less likely to be taken away by greed or taken away by hatred. You know, so that, that we want to give some instructions more for the daily life practice. But when we're sitting with it in meditation, which is a context in which we're suspended from action, then we just want to be with it. It gets a little complicated uh, in daily life because sometimes we want to definitely not act on something. But in the meditation sessions, we notice greed, hatred, delusion. If there's judgment that arises, we notice that. But it's fine that it's there, essentially because it's not our basic nature. Greed, hatred, delusion are taken in this context not to be our basic nature, but to be visitors. And our basic nature is taken to be that of wisdom and luminous nature and kindness. We'll come back to that. <laughs> so let me let me leave a little bit of time if there are any questions or comments, and we'll use we'll use the mic. And you had did you have your one from before the uh, before the walking? That is it still relevant? Well, let's let's wait till the mic comes. If you, I wanted to give you the first. Okay. Um, I may have answered it myself in yeah. my head, but I'm coming back to the brain surgery again. Oh, yeah. And it seems that by him knowing that he's angry, 
and being able to shelve it for a while until he does his work with complete concentration, yeah. that that's mindfulness. Yet you're saying that he needs to be in the anger and, and with it for it to really be mindfulness. Is well, that we, correct? We, uh, the question about the, the brain surgeon who uh, shuts off the anger during the surgery for the benefit of many. <laughs> um, is that, uh, isn't he being mindful? Well, um, yes and no, I think. But if you, that's where we go back to the three types of mindfulness that I was giving. He's mindful in the sense that he knows that anger is there. Okay. And that, that's, that's mindful. And that's all that he or she needs in that moment. You know, because that can then lead to, I'm angry, I'm about to perform brain surgeon surgery. What does wisdom tell me would be wise? <laughs> He says, mm, <laughs> let's deal with the anger later, <laughs> right? And so it's being mindful in the sense of noticing, but it's not mindful in the sense of being with the anger at that moment. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, please. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm noticing some greed arising in myself because I have two questions, and, and I really need both to be answered. So just relax I don't know that your I body, do. notice. <laughs> I don't know that I actually need them to be answered, but maybe one could, maybe I'll turn one into a comment and one into a question. Okay, so, so just briefly, um, it Next. seems to me... <laughs> No, I, I, I paid my fifty dollars. <laughs> um, uh, mindfulness and playfulness are important together. Okay. <laughs> okay. Please, um, we, so we know each other. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do this with someone I didn't know. Yeah, this, this is what you do to your friends. <laughs> um, so, uh, it, first of all, it seems like it's important to distinguish between. Just the way you distinguish between anger and hatred, yeah. between desire and greed, right? Because desire doesn't seem to have these factors that you were talking about—the impulsivity, yeah. the con lack of consequences. Yeah. So I think it's it's a tricky little distinction. Yeah, yeah. So um, shall I respond to that? Well, let me throw in the other one, and then you could. Maybe decide which one to... Unless I get overly confused. Okay. Well, this, the second one is about practicing with uh, mind and practicing with Vedana. Mm -hmm. Because it seems like you can't really do both at the same time. Mm -hmm. And how do, you, how do you kind of, you know, teeter-totter between those two? How do you, mm -hmm. how do you um, decide which one you're working on. Okay. So if you had, if you wanted just one to be answered, which one would it be? <laughs> no, no just, just joking. Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, so first one, yeah, it's a really, it's a really good point that uh, when we look to what greed, greed is, or this, it has the, those qualities of impulsivity. What's being pointed to <coughs> by these uh, so-called unwholesome roots 
is something that's generally <clears throat> highly reactive, not happening with much awareness, impulsive, somewhat out of control. That's what's being pointed to as problematic. And I think that's, that probably is more important than what word we use to translate it. Because, and, you know, uh, greed generally has almost exclusively negative connotation in this culture. You know, and um, uh, hatred does as well. Anger does not. Desire also has uh, a lot of positive connotations in many, in many circles, but it's, it's desire is sometimes used as a translation here, which would start to, again, be uh, problematic. So, generally speaking, you know, one of, the, one of the teachings where this is distinguished some, as many of you know, is a teaching called Dependent Arising, or Paticca Samuppada. And maybe some of you even studied with, anyone study with Gary Buck? Uh, he did a class here, which was over just a week or two ago, I think, right? And there, there's a, uh, there's a movement that goes like this. Let's say what we were, there's contact between a sense and some object. Let's say, um, let's say my eyes and a container of ice cream. Okay? And then there's, on the basis of contact, there's feeling tone. And let's say, what would, you know, feeling tone might be, uh, oh, very nice, I like that, because there's a sense of liking, maybe, which is getting a little bit away from feeling tone, but it's close enough. You know, a sense of pleasant, oh, I'm glad that there's ice cream at this, you know, at this party, let's say. And then, <clears throat> and then there could be, uh, based on the pleasant feeling tone, there could be a kind of wanting or craving. You know, there could be, and that would be close to what we, if there's probably a continuum here, there could be the desire, and the desire may or may not be, have that quality of craving, like I have to have that. Desire could just be, oh, ice cream would be nice. Or it could be, I've had a really hard day, I definitely need ice cream. <laughs> you know, something, that, that's, those are different, right? Those have different qualities. One we could call maybe desire, but in English we would, might use desire for both. So the language gets tricky. And then there's the, that sense of craving or really, really wanting. That might more correspond to greed. And then there's the grasping. There's the actual taking of the ice cream. And so there's that kind of continuum. And definitely there could be a kind of desire which doesn't have those impulsive compulsive, out-of-control qualities, right? So I think, I think there's probably a continuum there. And what's being pointed to in the teaching here is the kind of, the kind of uh, wanting which is more impulsive, compulsive, out-of-control, uh, you know, taking us, uh, taking us somewhere whether I want to go or not, right? That's, that's the spirit here. And so, maybe, maybe that's linked to your question about the feeling tone and its relationship to the third foundation. I think this relation of the second and third foundation, the second foundation of feeling tone is taken to be a little more primitive, really. A little less uh, subtle in some way. And it's happening all the time 
the, the claim is that the feeling tone is there with every moment of experience. There's some sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, even if it's a lot of it's in the middle range. And the thoughts and emotions are taken to be a little bit more um, subtle and a little bit, maybe a little bit more um, complex in their forms. That's probably how it would be distinguished. Yeah, thanks. Um, please, in the, oh, okay, here and then in the back, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, delusion. Yeah. I'm feeling uh, confused and bewildered about delusion. Yeah. We've talked a lot about uh, greed, and that seems yeah. pretty clear, yeah. uh, intellectually anyway, in my own experience. And, yeah. and I really grasp, I think, sort of hatred or aversion. Yeah. But I, could you speak about delusion, like what that means or what that common experience is? What, what because is yeah, what is delusion? I don't know what yeah, that means. Yeah, it's a great means. question, because I think, I think you're right that the, the term doesn't suggest as easily our lived experience. Yeah. I, think that, I think that's right. And um, I think it has to do with a range of experiences, you know, and, and probably we could uh, really distinguish many, many different kinds of delusion, you know, uh, that would range from uh, just being in a state where, which we acknowledge as confusion, I'm confused, I'm bewildered, that would, uh, th- those probably are experientially most accessible. Uh, it might also have to do with uh, really being uh, stuck on a certain view or concept. So I'm really, so I think that... Um, do you mean feeling stuck? Yeah. Uh, or, or actually sometimes feeling stuck, but often being stuck. So I think... I think the, this teaching on delusion, I think, is a little more related to actual teachings and, uh, not, and not, not simply given an experiential definition. So I brought in um, a very helpful essay, which is by uh, a German monk who's been an influential writer who died about 30 years ago named Nyanaponikatera. This is called The Vision of Dhamma. And he has, a, he has an essay here called The Roots of Good and Evil, which is his way of talking about these three roots. And I'll, I, I thought I would read his characterization of what delusion is. Um, delusion, taking the form of ignorance, is a state of confusion, bewilderment, and helplessness. In its aspect of false views, delusion issues in dogmatism. It takes on a fanatical, even obsessive character and makes the mind rigid and encapsulated. And there is, um, I think those of you who've read Analayo uh, know that there's, uh, there, there are descriptions given there. Let me see if I can find these. Um, there are descriptions given of, uh, from, in the Dhammapada, there's a characterization of greed, hatred, and delusion. And there's also one given by uh, Buddha Dasa, who's a 20th century Thai monk, one of the great writers. And he said, I, I remember he said that, um, that uh, delusion is like going around in circles. That was his characterization. Let me see if I can find this in, in the text.
Now this is from the Dhammapada. It said, there is no fire like lust or greed. So greed is likened experientially to fire. Uh, dosa, or the second, is likened to uh, a grip that has us very tightly. And, and there is no net like delusion. So delusion is likened to a net in which we're caught in that text. Buddha Dasa uh, talks about how the, the roots are connected with greed is a kind of pulling in, I want this. Uh, hatred is connected with uh, a kind of pushing away. And delusion is running around in circles. <laughs> uh, let me see if I can find some other write-ups. So it's a little bit more abstract, I think, with delusion. So it would be the experiences of confusion. But some of you see like the way Nainaponikatera described it. it, it also would have to do with... Um, being caught unconsciously. So one of the problems of this is that a lot of delusion or ignorance is, um, in the words, words of uh, Donald Rumsfeld, we don't know what we don't know. <laughs> Do you remember that press re- would, would okay, this qualify? go into that. <laughs> would this qualify as, as delusion? I was just, would this qualify as delusion? So I'm, yeah. I'm just thinking of my own life. I'm... Um, unemployed and I've been unemployed for a while. I'd gotten laid off mm-hmm. and I have a lot of aversion. You know, I've cleaned the house and the closets and, you know, done everything mm-hmm. I can possibly do except look for work. Yeah. And and I'm in that and I could say I can see throughout my life there's I have a I Anita have a certain pattern mm-hmm. when this happens to me. Yeah. Um, I've left a certain work. Then a, a certain things happen and I take a lot of time to reorient and and I know all about it you have all the skills yeah. and yet I am I feel you know like I'm caught yeah. in my own um, pattern and yeah, that's that's a great example is that yeah I think I think you're I think what we're pointing to is that delusion is not so immediately obvious as uh, greed and hatred, which is, which is important to know. Or not so immediate. Not so immediate in our experience. It could be, yeah, so we could think of um, maybe procrastination would be a form of delusion, where I never get around to what's important to me. And, I'm, and maybe I have uh, a lot of stories about it. Being lost in certain stories could also be a form of delusion. Let's suppose that I'm, you know, I have this, uh, you know, have this difficulty with another person and I totally focus on the other person's to blame for it. That's a kind of delusion in that I'm not seeing my own responsibility. Again, a little more subtle, we would need to look at it. I would think another aspect of delusion would be denial. You know, think of, uh, um, it seems, again, this is, you know, this, this is a little more complex, but... Uh, uh, maybe people who deny climate disruption. Is that a form of delusion? It seems to be, right? That, and it's on, it's on a large scale. You know, so another thing would be people sometimes would be uh, so influenced by strong emotions that they wouldn't see a situation clearly. Maybe fear. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's a great question to, to really bring this out. So delusion is going to be a little trickier to look at. So it would be a really interesting aspect of the homework, really, to say, 
how does denial appear in my experience? Yeah. Let me take one more, and then I think we're going to move to, uh, to lunch. Yeah. Well, this may have helped me, this uh, last question, you, but I'm trying to, the, the I'm trying to uh, contextualize yeah. what you're saying. So I have my own experiences and feeling them. But here's an experience that maybe we all can relate to, and if you yeah. could help me, maybe help us. And so the, um, the debates on Tuesday night. Yeah. Um, I would say most of us probably, if we're here, have similar views. It was. Um, uh, we we cannot presume it, that. <laughs> um, it was upsetting. Yeah. Um, to me, um, there was a forward of uh, of delusion that kind of went in with it for me in some experience, and there's some greed of yeah. how I interpret it in some experience. I could share all those within it, but maybe since that just happened and we all feel it, maybe you could help me. So you, you feel something, you respond to it, you feel it, and then how you go through it when you talk about greed and delusion. I could, do you want me to express my own feeling with it? I'm not quite getting it. Maybe I'm missing something. Well, I'm just trying to contextualize what you're saying in a real experience that we've all sort of recently of had, watching the rather debates. than telling you my own personal experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and were you saying you're... Well, I bothered. Uh, you know, we, we, I, I thought Obama was doing clearly well, and this, this is a game changer within it, and I'm fearful. I'm fearful for climate change. I'm fearful for a lot of people. I'm fearful for it, then in myself of fear. Uh, I'm angry. Yeah. I'm angry that the lies and everything else can get away and that uh, people's you can get away with that, and there's not a lack of public understanding. Yeah. Um, then it you know, gets into my own sense of that. I'm greed because maybe I'm being delusional. I'm being, yeah. you know, I'm judging something in my own view of the world, and there's a more complex view of the world. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that uh, bringing, bringing mindfulness to watching a presidential debate is pretty interesting. Um, in fact, I think on, on, uh, on the homework, uh, exercise number 10 actually asked you to do that. Um, I said at the end of that, watch the presidential debates and tune in to the presence of emotions and their link with thoughts. Uh, <laughs> um, so I, I think it's actually important. I've, you know, this, this starts to connect with, like, the socially engaged perspective. But I think it's actually, uh, it's actually pretty interesting to watch the news and do mindfulness practice. You know, I've, I've thought of doing retreats where we did that, uh, at least for some of the time, not, not too much. Um, but, uh, but I think, yeah, to really uh, notice uh, what's going on with your uh, thoughts, emotions, the body, in a situation which is pretty charged is exactly what this foundation is pointing to. And to see where is there uh, greed, hatred, delusion. Now, the whole um, nature of the practice of working with that is that I think we do it over some time. It's not like you 
watch yourself <clears throat> for half an hour during a debate and say, okay, there's greed, there's hatred, there's delusion. I think it actually takes some time to sort out what's there. Like you were saying, you were giving a lot of the example, anger arises. You need to stay with that to see what's there, to sort it out some. You know, because there could be there, you know, I th- and I'll come to this in the afternoon, something like anger uh, or being judgmental may have a lot of insight there and it gets caught with reactivity. You know, and we want to see both, both of those, right? And so it's, it's a big issue for, as I mentioned earlier, for activists that it's almost like the idea, oh, I have the right idea, therefore anything goes. That's often, I'm exaggerating some, but, but that's um, sometimes the case, right? I ha- I'm on the right side, or I see this injustice, therefore my anger or my acting out is okay. I'm not saying people think that consciously, but I think there's something like that. So it's a really interesting area to look at and really to, to, uh, to work with that. Okay, um, I want to just do a few things uh, moving into lunch. So we'll come back. Uh, let me see, I'll make a few announcements and we'll see where we are, but probably come back at 1.45. Uh, for, uh, for our, our third segment. And we'll come back into a guided meditation so you can come back and come back into silence. Um, I'll invite you over lunch to... Um, how many of you would like to connect or talk with other people here about some of the practices? I think I'm going to give you your option to be in silence or to talk, okay? And... and Talking, of course, doesn't mean necessarily that mindfulness goes out the window. <laughs> it's important. I won't go so much into that, but you know, I, some of you know I teach a seven-day retreat on mindfulness and wise speech. And there's, it's actually a, a very powerful practice to bring, you know, the, generally if you're speaking, the thing would be to try to keep some mindfulness a lot, if you can stay a little bit in your body and notice what's happening, notice when there are thoughts, reactions, and be speaking can try that. So I'll invite for everyone mindfulness of thoughts and emotions during the uh, lunchtime. Keep the practice going. Maybe let some of the points be digested. Notice if there's greed, hatred, delusion and stay with that. Uh, Again, it can be helpful sometimes to take notes with your practice. I'll talk more about note-taking. It's actually something we don't do so much, but it can be very helpful because there's a lot that can happen when you see patterns and notice something, and we can bring in the wisdom dimension more. Okay, and um, most of you are very familiar with Donna, right? How many of, uh, I think most of you are very familiar, and how many of you are not so familiar with Donna? So just, just, uh, just a few. I'll be brief. Um, we work uh, at Spirit Rock with uh, what we call Donna, which is the word for generosity, And most deeply, it means that we're generous with our lives. And we've also used that term to help us navigate some of the economics uh, here at Spirit Rock. And it's pretty much the way uh, the Buddhist tradition in South and Southeast Asia has been organized for several thousand years, that basically the teachings are taken off of the market. So when I've stayed at monasteries in Thailand, I would just be given a cottage and I had no bill that came when I was ready to leave. 
and it's very similar at uh, many Western places. When I've stayed at the Abbey of Gethsemane, where Thomas Merton was, and stayed at a Catholic monastery, and stayed there, very similar, no bill. You know? And then there's the possibility of offering to support the monastery, you know, Western as well as Asian tradition. And here, we've tried to keep that spirit going, and, a, and here we do it in kind of a mixed way. We have a, a fee that uh, is for the day long, which basically helps to have a break, the break-even budget of Spirit Rock as a nonprofit work. So that's what the fee that you pay goes for. It goes for keeping the institution going. Uh, none of that goes to me. Uh, in fact, I'm not given anything by Spirit Rock. I'm giving lunch. Okay. <laughs> I'm go up and have lunch. <laughs> But, but that's it. Um, and, uh, and so there's, the way we do it is that, uh, in this case, the teachers in, in, in retreats also, uh, the staff, uh, are not on stipends. And we try to separate that kind of break-even nonprofit budget, which keeps things going, from the offering for the teachings, which are, uh, we don't want to turn those into a commodity. And so there's a, a way that uh, people can offer uh, dana, which would go really to help me keep doing what I'm doing. Almost all of my income these days comes from dana. You know, I do one-on-one -on -one counseling in the same way. It's all people offer what they offer, and all the teaching. And it's and also I'm I'm on your end a lot. I do retreats. I go to teachings. I offer dana to others myself. So I'm on both ends, really. So. There's, a, I think, a basket at the back, and you can offer the dawn. I think you make the checks out to Spirit Rock. People sometimes offer me chocolate or vegetables. And, <laughs> you know, you know, mostly, mostly cash or checks. But, <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, I thank you in advance for that, because it really helps me keep doing this. And you know, some of us would like the center to go in the long run to where everything is done. There are some centers which work like that. East Bay Center, where I sometimes teach in Oakland, works like that. The Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City works, they both work entirely on a Donna basis. And Spirit Rock's bigger and more complex, but it's, I think, it's, uh, it, you know, it would take a, take a while to get there. But anyway, thank you in advance for that uh, support. And, um, okay. And so we'll, we'll come back at 1245 and come right into a silent sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.